No great thing is created suddenly. Who said that? Do you remember our last Great Quotes episode, Volume 8, dating back to May 16th of this year? Anyone? Anyone? Well done. I know some of you got that right. The Greek Stoic philosopher Epictetus. Or how about Teddy Roosevelt's The Greatest Thing in Life is Hard Work Worth Doing. Why are we rocking other people's silver tongues this week? Why, it must be Great Quotes, Volume 9. Support for Rule Breaker Investing comes from our friends at Rocket Mortgage by Quicken Loans, who are excited to introduce their all-new Rate Shield approval. If you're in the market to buy a home, Rate Shield approval is a real game changer, and here's why. First, Quicken Loans will lock your rate for up to 90 days while you shop. And here's the crucial part if rates go up, your rate stays the same, but if rates go down, your rate also goes down. Either way, sounds to me like you win. It's the kind of thinking you'd expect from America's largest mortgage lender. To get started, go to rocketmortgage.com slash fool. It's the Rule Breaker Investing Podcast with Motley Fool co-founder David Gardner. And welcome back to Rule Breaker Investing. I'm David Gardner. Thanks so much for spending a little bit of time suffering a fool gladly this week. It's been an investing-heavy month for Rule Breaker Investing, the podcast. Looking back over the first three weeks of October, last week, 200 Stock Advisor Picks Later. That was a special podcast, because it's not every week that I get to reflect on making my 200th consecutive monthly stock pick for Motley Fool Stock Advisor. That's what I did last week. If you're a Stock Advisor member, you now know what the stock was. And if you're a Rule Breaker Investing podcast listener, you heard me with six conclusions thinking back through those 200 months, which, by the way, quick math shows is about 16 and a half years. And I hope you enjoyed those reflections. The week before that, it was the League of Extraordinary Stock Pickers. I got to interview a new friend, uh, somebody who'd won the contest in Motley Fool Rule Breakers for picking Best Buys Now over the last year. I also reviewed five great stocks you've never heard of, one of my five stock samplers from a year before. And then the first week of this month, it was Get Started Investing. And as you'll remember, I hope, if you heard it, that was part one of two. So I had my friends David Kretzman, Jason Moser, and Matt Argusinger in. They joined with me. And our goal of that podcast was to get you get started investing. And I hope it was helpful for you. I also said it was part one of two because I'm going to ask you to help us back. If you continue to have questions, if we missed anything, if you'd like to add something or plus up anything that we said, we'd love for you to email us, rbi at fool.com. You can also tweet us at RBI Podcast on Twitter. And why am I asking for that? Well, we're going to take in those questions, and that's really going to be the main course of Get Started Investing 2 out of 2. And we'll be doing that the very first week of next month, the first week of November. So, rbi at fool.com if you have any additional questions about getting started investing. And so, yeah, it's been an investing-heavy month for this podcast, and that's why I thought, you know, maybe time to go back to a non-investing topic that has recurred more frequently than any other non-investing topic on my podcast, and that's just looking over some great quotations. I'm a big fan of saving great quotes. I use Evernote. 
That's how I do it. I know there are a lot of ways to hold on to information, but for me, I've always enjoyed Evernote. So I, when I come across a great quote from a CEO or a Greek Stoic philosopher, I'll just drop it into Evernote. I have notebooks lined up. I have one that's called Visceral Quotations when I really feel it in my gut. Um, I put it in there, or maybe Business Quotations. I have one Evernote called Fool slash Folly Quotations because there are, of course, so many great quotes about wisdom and folly. Very, very important for the motley fool to take take note of, and so I've got a lot of different quote notes and uh, all in my quotes notebook. That's where I save my stuff, and that's what I get to pull out, you know, once every few months here. And this is indeed volume nine of my great quotes series, and that means that I've done this eight other times before. And if you feel inspired or enjoyed this, I like to think each of those past eight podcasts will age pretty well because they're kind of done to be an evergreen resource to anybody. So, if you find yourself moved or if you enjoy the inspiration I'm going to share with you in our time together this week, feel free to look back at my May 16th, Great Quotes, Volume 8. There's an All Buffett one a year before that. You can go back through Rule Breaker Podcast Investing History. And these days, by the way, I should mention, you can even find transcripts of my past podcasts. My teammate, producer Rick Engdahl, working with Brian Ty here at The Motley Fool and some of our Fool Techies has made it possible now through transcripts.fool.com to find transcripts for this and indeed most of our other podcasts. So you can find some great quotes that way more quickly and not have to listen to a foolish old windbag if you like a little bit more efficient way of finding good stuff. So anyway, I've got good stuff for you. I have five quotations lined up. That's typically what I've tried to do with this series, find five and a motley mix of things that are investing or business or life related. So I say without further ado, let's get started. All right, great quotation number 1. This one comes from William Shakespeare. I bet you've heard of him. In fact, I hope you know that the Motley Fool's corporate name comes from Shakespeare. That was from Act 2, Scene 7 of As You Like It, but this time I'm going to A Winter's Tale, which is a tragi-comedy. It's a really one of my favorite plays of all of Shakespeare's. It doesn't tend to get put on as often as something like Romeo and Juliet or Hamlet, but Winter's Tale, no spoilers, starts with a tragic few acts and then ends with a comic few acts. And it's a, it's a wonderful story and one of Shakespeare's most famous stage directions is the quote that I'm pulling from A Winter's Tale. And here it is, exit pursued by a bear. There's some debate as to whether in Elizabethan times they used a real bear on stage to chase Antigonus, the actor uh, who's exiting being pursued by a bear, or whether it was just an actor in a bear costume. And I'm sure in centuries since, there's probably been a little bit of both. I personally would love to see a live bear on stage, but uh, not if you're Antigonus, because Antigonus, as he gets chased off stage, that's the last we ever see of him. He is presumed dead, presumably by that bear. But why would I lead off with exit pursued by a bear and call that a great quotation? Well, in a little bit of, I would say, linguistic leisure domain, I made this an epigraph in the very first edition of the Motley Fool Investment Guide. Now, an epigraph, as you may well know, is a quotation that'll lead off a chapter or a section or a part of a book. And I thought this is the perfect one to lead off our chapter on selling stocks and selling strategy. Exit pursued by a bear, because of course, it's a wonderful pun on bear markets, which is why I wanted to talk a little bit here at the outset of this podcast about bear 
markets. You know, most bear markets last somewhere between 12 to 18 months. Uh, they're much briefer than bull markets. Bull markets run over years. Bear markets are usually counted in months, but as I've often said in the past, stocks go down faster than they go up. And so, when bear markets strike, like a bear strikes with its paw down, stocks go down and often a lot faster than you or I would like. And I would say right now, here at the end of October 2018, I think we might be in a bear market. Now, how do I conclude that? Well, I look at my own scorecard picking stocks for Motley Fool rule breakers, and I look back over the last several months, and each of my picks is down and losing to the market, in some cases 20% or so. And when I see stocks lose about a fifth of their value, and it's happening fairly consistently, I start going, well, when did that start? And for me, it was around mid-June. So, doing quick math on my own family portfolio that I manage, I'm down about 15% from June to this week. So, that's not a great performance. That's definitely a time that I wish the market hadn't done that over the last several months. Although, when I look at the S&P 500, which is a more broad market measure than my family portfolio or your portfolio, I'll note that actually the market's about where it was as of June this week, as of mid-June. It really hasn't moved, but it has surged higher than that in the meantime and then fallen down over the last month. So, those keeping score at home looking at the broad market will note that over the last 30 days, the market's down about 7% as I take this podcast here on Tuesday, October 23rd. So, I think at least for me and my style, for the rule-breaker investing approach, I think we're in a bear market right now. And it's been lasting a few months, and some of the damage has already been done, and there'll probably be some more damage done. We'll see. I'm not one to make big market calls, and I hope you realize that when I say that I think we're in a bear market, it doesn't change how I invest, and I'm certainly not trying to alarm anyone. And I'm also just guessing, because we really never know until we look back 12 or 18 months later and say, that was a bear market. Of course, people are constantly predicting where the market will go. And a lot of people thought there'd be a bear market in 2013 and 14 and 15 and then 2016 and then 17 and 2018. So there's always a lot of guesswork, but we really only know when exit pursued by a bear matters once it's already happened. So I wanted to lead off with exit pursued by a bear because I think it's a great pun for investors pulled right from my favorite playwright, William Shakespeare. And I want to point out what actually ends up happening to Antigonus when he exits pursued by a bear. And as I mentioned earlier, no spoilers really, but he'll never be seen again. And I don't think that's a great outcome for you or me as investors. So when I see a bear, I don't exit. And I'm here to suggest that you should not exit either, unless you're overinvested, unless you've borrowed on margin, which you should never have done, according to us here at The Motley Fool, for the most part, um, or if you really did need the money for something else, like a home payment or something else in the next three years. We've always said here at Fool HQ, we're now in our 26th year as a business of saying this, that you as an investor should only have money in the stock market that you can afford to lose and that you won't need for three plus years, because the next three years, any given three-year period could be bad, and I'd hate to think that you were risking money that you actually needed for something else. Of course, we're always playing the only game that counts here at The Motley Fool, and that is the long-term game. So, exit pursued by a bear is not only a fun pun uniting Shakespeare with investing, but it's a warning to us as investors not to exit 
most of the bears that you see over the course of your life. And again, if you're making a lifetime commitment to being invested in the stock market, which is, I think, one of the best decisions you can make, and history and data proves that out, then you'll recognize that almost every bear you see, you should stay on stage. Quotation number one. Before I go to great quotation number two, I should mention that I think a lot of people in particular in recent years, have feared a bear market because they think it could be really bad. And why is that? Well, the last couple of bear markets have historically been horrible. 2008 and 9, and then, of course, 2001, those two markets, the Great Recession and then the dot-bomb bomb, really saw the markets lose about half their value, in some cases more if you're counting the NASDAQ. And so, great companies like Amazon, I remember back in 2001, too, went from like 95 in 2000 down to 7 at its bottom, I think, in 2001. The numbers are right around there. But my point is, that was a drastic drop in one of the great companies of our time. And I think it's easy to be looking in the rearview mirror and think, well, that's what bear markets look like. But that's really not the case. So I think people are probably overrating and a little bit too afraid of the idea of the next recession or the next bear market. A thought. Great quotation number two. Well, this one comes from one of my favorite investment writers, an investor who wrote a great book. And I was thinking about him recently today, having not thought about him in some years because I was saying hello to Nick Seipel. Nick is a new fool. I have a new fool coffee with every one of our new fools who come through Fool HQ. I've done that for a couple of decades. It's always a pleasure to see our new employees and what they're doing to help our cause to make the world smarter, happier, and richer. And Nick, for some of you who listen to Motley Fool podcasts, you'll recognize that he does in an industry-focused podcast, recently having taken over the microphone. So, he's a new fool, but one who has more exposure than most fools, because he's a podcaster. And Nick was saying to me today, you know, Philip Fisher, Phil Fisher, who wrote a great book, turns out the year was 1958, I double-checked my math here, the book is Common Stocks, Uncommon Profits, and it's a classic. And Nick said to me, you know, a lot of what he says in there is how you and we invest at the Motley Fool. I mean, we might think we're doing the fool thing and we're radical and doing a new thing, but Fisher, a lot of how we think about things, like the best time to sell is never, those kinds of lines, a lot of those derive from Fisher. And I said to Nick, first of all, thanks for reminding me of that, because of the few investment books I've read in my lifetime, one of them that I did read is Phil Fisher's book, and I thought it was excellent. So, before I give his quote here for great quotation number two, I'm going to say, dear fool, if you've never read common stocks, uncommon profits, I highly recommend you do so. Yes, it may read a bit dated, because it was written before the internet, yep, about 40 years before the internet showed up, but it really contains so much good thinking that feels fresh and like it was written yesterday. Anyway, here's great quotation number two. Finding the really outstanding companies and staying with them through all the fluctuations of a gyrating market proved far more profitable to far more people than did the more colorful practice of trying to buy them cheap and sell them dear." So, that's Fisher, one of his writings, a great quotation, reminding us that it is, in fact, the old saw goes, it's time in the market, not timing the market. That's not a Fisher saw, that's just an old investment phrase. But that's the way to win. So, I'm obviously keying back to great quotation number one, exit pursued by a bear, encouraging you not to exit, because 
again with Phil Fisher, finding the really outstanding companies and staying with them through all the fluctuations of a gyrating market proved far more profitable to far more people. And I don't think I need to say a lot more about this. I think it speaks for itself. It kind of keys to my first quotation, and it's one of our primary points that I've made on this podcast for a few years now, and that Fool.com and so many of our writers, advisors, and analysts have made that point for for a few decades. Um, I do want to say, before I move on to great quotation number three, that what other investment books would I recommend or have I enjoyed? And I mentioned earlier that I haven't really read that many. I, I don't typically find investing books that interesting to read. I did read How to Read a Financial Report. I believe that's by John Tracy. And since I was an undergrad English major and I never took an accounting course, as I graduated college, already a stock market investor, I thought, you know, I should get a better handle on financial statements. So that was a great way for me of uniting my understanding of what's on an income statement, which is basically showing the profits of a company or losses. And then second, what's on a balance sheet, which is basically the bank account for that company. And then finally, the cash flow statement, which is kind of like looking at cash in and cash out from that bank account, kind of like what you're spending on a daily basis. So, those three financial statements, the income statement, the balance sheet, and the statement of cash flows, that's a wonderful book to understand how they work together, and because it speaks to at sort of a fifth grade math level, you know things like addition, subtraction, division, and multiplication, which is about as complicated as I like my math to get. And by the way, I really do like math. I think we should all like math. But uh, that book stays right there with us, and I think can really help anybody get a better grip on financial statements. So I definitely want to mention that one. Of course, I want to think and mention Peter Lynch's book One Up on Wall Street, which was formative for me. This was written. Uh, about 30 years ago. but uh, So, while many of the companies that he's writing about will sound like old-time companies that you may not have heard of anymore, again, the lessons and his wonderful wit comes through and helps all of us as investors. He also wrote Beating the Street as a follow-up. That's another book that I've read. I'll mention, um, I'll mention three other books really quickly. One is William O'Neill's book, How to Make Money in Stocks. I've said it's both the, some of the greatest and some of the worst writing that I've ever seen in a single book to help and hurt investors, where I think O'Neill is brilliant. O'Neill, by the way, the founder of Investors Business Daily, a publication I've certainly appreciated over the course of my life. Where he has it nailed is he looks at studies that show what are the great stocks of an era, and he looks at the traits that lead to those stocks. And in many cases, he teaches us contrary things. So when I first read How to Make Money in Stocks by William O'Neill, I was probably more focused on 52 week lows as the time that I would start to look to buy a stock. Like the stock is at a low, so I should be more interested, I thought in the stock because of that reason. But in fact, O'Neill shows through studies and some really good writing, he shows that really you should be looking at 52-week highs because this is one of my themes for 2018 on this podcast, right? Winners win. What do winners do? That's right. They win. And as it turns out, that's often true of stocks. So, stocks at 52-week highs typically go on to make more highs and new highs in the coming months or years versus stocks that are bouncing around from low to high, back to low again. So, so I like to find companies that grow, and I'm happy to pay for them when they're at their 52-week high. And that's what O'Neill convinced me. However, a lot of his book includes advice about trying to time the market and guessing where the market's going. I hope you didn't take me too seriously earlier when I said I thought we might be in the fourth month of a bear market, because first of all, I don't care that much about it. I'm going to be invested anyway. And second, 
I really don't know. But I think O'Neill tries to persuade you that you can know, and he uses a whole bunch of different metrics that, taken together, read confusingly to me. There's too many different ways of indicators of figuring out where the market's headed. And he also advises, and I think this is really bad advice, to never take a big loss. So if a stock drops 7%, he's often said and written in the past, you should just exit that regardless of the research that you did or what you believe in the company because you want to avoid those losses. And I hope I've demonstrated through my work at The Motley Fool and through this podcast that taking losses is fine. It's natural, and in a lot of ways, I say we need to lose to win. I'm not going to belabor that point here because I've made it elsewhere. But the last two books I want to mention quickly Benjamin Graham's book, The Intelligent Investor. Benjamin Graham, of course, the great influence on Warren Buffett. I read about half of that book as a young man, and I just didn't keep reading. I found it pretty boring, backward looking, and its methodologies around valuation, while interesting. Uh, never compelled me. And in a lot of ways, rule breaker investing succeeds because a lot of other people follow Benjamin Graham. So, uh, and I can't not mention Jack Bogle, one of my personal heroes, somebody that I've had on this podcast before. Um, I've never really read any of Bogle's investment books. I'm not a huge index fund fan, even though we here at The Motley Fool have turned many people onto index funds as a better answer to the mutual funds that they owned before the simplicity and low cost of a good index fund. But what I love Bogle for is his emphasis on character and his thinking about business. So, a book like Enough, while not really an investment book, I thought I should mention it briefly here. I'm not giving you my Mount Rushmore of investing books because I really haven't read enough ever to be able to sort through and have a grand Mount Rushmore. In closing on this one, I find myself reading books often about business, not about investing, or about culture, or life, or technology, or the future, again, as opposed to reading investing books. I'm sure your mileage may well vary. We're all different, but I'm just kind of sharing it out how I think about these things. Great quotation number three. Great quotation number three comes from one of my favorite CEOs, maybe one of your favorite CEOs, too. I won't even name him yet. Maybe you can guess from the quote itself. He begins, this is like a paragraph, several sentences strung together. He begins, I see all the imperfections in Netflix. I see all the things that aren't working. At the office, I'm the one that says, we suck. Don't get me wrong, we're better than everyone else, but we suck compared to what we're going to be. Of course, in general, I'm constraining myself from saying these things because they are too easy to take out of context, but as an entrepreneur, that's how you have to look at your product. Compare yourself to what you want to be, what you will be in five years, and that should be so much better than what you have today. So, yes, you've probably guessed by now that's the CEO of Netflix, Reed Hastings. And what's fun about that quotation, I'm going to say a little bit more about it as an entrepreneur in a second, but what's fun about that quotation is he didn't say it last month or last year. I pulled that quote in 2013, dropped it into my Evernote file, and saved it until today to share it with you because it's kind of fun now since it is five years after he said that quote. And by the way, if you want to read that whole article, it was an interview with him. It's at thenextweb.com. If you just Google The Next Web, all one word, read Hastings 2013, you'll see the article I'm talking about entitled Inspiring Entrepreneurs, What Netflix CEO Reed Hastings Has Learned in His Business Career. But that was published just about five years ago this month. And so Reed was thinking about what Netflix is today 
when he said that. And if you think back to where Netflix was in 2013, it was definitely on a comeback. It was already a winner and a great winner from the previous decade. But do you remember Quickster in 2011 and how badly Netflix got thrown for a loop? A self-inflicted wound, really, by, in part, CEO Reed Hastings, who acknowledged his mistakes at the time and since has described it as just one bad chapter in Netflix's history. But I love the quotation, not just because this has been one of the best stocks you could have owned over the last five years, but of course, I love it as a fellow entrepreneur. And I know many of you are entrepreneurs listening as well. And so, don't you love it? We see all the imperfections, we should anyway, in the things, the widgets that we're creating, the products and the services. We see all the things we should that aren't with Reed Hastings, that aren't working. At the office, we're the ones that say we suck. I certainly think you should be. You don't want to say it too loud, and as he said, you don't want to say it out of context. If you say it all the time, somebody will start quoting you from the Wall Street Journal or Fortune magazine, and all of a sudden, you'll have generated a headline about how much your company sucks in this case. But uh, but I think the key is that you're always looking to improve, and especially if you're a visionary like Reed Hastings or like some Motley Fools I know, or like you, because I bet I'm speaking to some visionaries out there, then you're seeing, you know what you're trying to become. And so, you're guided by a sense of what needs to be fixed, and a restlessness, if you will, a desire to get there and to be that thing years from now that you will be. And now that we can look backwards five years after Reed said that this month and see how Netflix is kind of king of the world these days, I'm a regular listener of many Motley Fool podcasts, and I think a recent market foolery was entitled something like Netflix Eater of Worlds. Uh, within the last week, you can hear that podcast from our market foolery team. But that is kind of how Netflix is acting these days. And I, I like to think, before we move to quotation number four, I like to think that Reed Hastings still thinks the exact same thing today. Don't you think Reed might still say the exact same thing, that here in 2018, he sees all the imperfections in Netflix, he sees all the things that aren't working, and at the office, he's still, say, he's still the one saying, we suck? I'd like to think that he is, and I'm going to be really interested in seeing what Netflix becomes over the next five years. So, yeah, great quotation number three. This one's for the entrepreneurs. Whether you are one or just have one in spirit inside you, it's for all of us entrepreneurs constant improvement and always striving toward the vision that you see, whether it's your own company or a company that you work for, always looking to get better. And it's always inspiring to see people say that and then actually do it for all of us. It's even more inspiring when you own shares of the companies that go on to do that as they win. And I know I'm speaking to many fellow Netflix shareholders. All right, well, how about this? From one read to another, from Reed Hastings to this week's ad read. Support for Rule Breaker Investing comes from our friends at Rocket Mortgage by Quicken Loans. Let's talk about buying a home for a minute. Because of rising interest rates, there is a lot of unpredictability these days when it comes to buying a home. It's causing some anxiety, no doubt, among some of my fellow fools. Well, our friends at Quicken Loans are doing something about that. They're calling it the power buying process, and here's how it works. Quicken Loans will verify your income, assets, and credit in less than 24 hours to give you a verified approval. This gives you the strength of a cash buyer, which is important because once you're verified, you're going to qualify for their all new exclusive rate shield approval. First, they're going to lock your rate for up to 90 days while you shop. And now here's the best part if rates go up, which they have been, your rate is going to stay the same over those 90 days. But if rates go down, which 
is often a great thing for the stock market. Well, your rate will also drop along with any dropping rate. So, either way, you win. It's the kind of thinking you'd expect from America's largest mortgage lender. To get started, go to rocketmortgage.com slash fool. Rate shield approval only valid on certain 30-year purchase transactions. Additional conditions or exclusions may apply based on Quicken Loans data in comparison to public data records. Equal housing lender, licensed in all 50 states, nmlsconsumeraccess.org, number 3030. Before we go on to great quotation number four, I'd just like to reflect that I think Rocket Mortgage has been our longest advertiser. In fact, we only started a year or so after I'd started Rule Breaker Investing the podcast. So, sometime in 2016, we did our first ads on any Motley Fool podcast. Back then, it was pure side of desk. There was no business attached other than we wanted to reach you and give you a human voice and help out our fellow fools. But all of a sudden, we've managed through partners like Rocket Mortgage to turn this into a business that pays us back, which makes us want to do more podcasts for you. So, thanks to Rocket Mortgage for always being a long-term Motley Fool supporter. All right, great quotation number four, and I'm going back to one of my favorite business authors. He's really an author as much, I should say, on leadership, and that's Warren Bennis. In fact, I featured Warren Bennis, one of his quotes, in my last Great Quotes, Volume 8, in May of 2018. Back then, it was, People are not interchangeable, Bennis wrote, and unique gifted talent needs to be well managed. That's another good thought for entrepreneurs. If you have some odd, idiosyncratically brilliant and helpful person, recognize their uniqueness. Really, we're all unique. And the most gifted leaders will recognize their gifted talents and well manage them. That was Bennis then. This is Bennis now. Same book on becoming a leader. Here's what I wanted to share with you this week. Quote, What determines the level of satisfaction in post-middle-aged men is the degree to which they acted upon their youthful dreams. What determines the level of satisfaction in post-middle-aged men, I suspect it's not just true of post-middle-aged men, is the degree to which they acted upon their youthful dreams. Now, the reason that Ben has said that is because in the book, he's talking about a study. So, he's reflecting on a study that was done. But I suspect it's true of women as well as men, and I suspect it's true of people of all ages. Now, to act on your youthful dreams, you probably need to be a little older than a youth, but that might be true of you if you're 28 or 32 right now, just as well as if you're 48 or 62. I think it's a reminder to all of us that we should think about what really drives us and motivates us in life. And often, there are visions that we had or desires we had as young people. And to the extent that you have acted on that, for better or for worse, to the extent that you pursued that dream, you're much more likely, I think, to be a happy listener of this podcast this week than if you did not. And in fact, Bennis goes on in the very next sentence of the book to say, it's not so much whether they were successful in achieving their dreams as the honest pursuit of them. So, I guess quotation number four is just here to challenge you, to invite you to ask that question of yourself Maybe pick up an old photograph back before there were computers and digital photographs. Maybe you have a photograph of yourself as a younger person printed out in some shoebox somewhere, a Kodachrome special. Look yourself in the eye and remember what you were dreaming about in that picture. And then I ask you to ask yourself, have you done it? Have you acted on it? And the good news is, whatever age you are as you hear me this week, you have an opportunity to act on those things if they're good things to act on. 
starting tomorrow. There's no reason, I don't think, other than some of the natural constraints we might have, like the job that you're trying to hold down, or you only have three vacation days left in 2018. I realize there are natural constraints, but really what I'm speaking to here are the constraints that we often throw up in our own paths, not somebody else's rules, but in fact, how we think about ourselves and how we often limit ourselves. One of my favorite quotations, in fact, I included this in our May Great Quotations Volume 8 podcast as well, is don't be limited by other people's limited imagination. So sometimes we create a box around ourselves based on what other people tell us about ourselves. But bad news, sometimes we even just do it to ourselves. So I'm here with great quotation number four to prick you a bit, to poke at you, and encourage you to do that for yourself and realize that even if it doesn't work out, you'll probably, post-middle age, you'll probably feel more satisfaction that you tried. Or as my friend Jeff Bezos has said, he calls it the regret minimization framework. Bezos says, when you're 80 years old, look back to the decisions that you're making now and try to minimize the regret that you're going to feel at the age of 80. And I realize some of my listeners are over 80, so you're probably knowingly nodding along with me and thinking about when you're 90 or 95, looking back to today and trying to make good decisions. But sometimes that means you should do something that you haven't been doing. Other times it means you should not do something. I'll leave it up to you to decide when you should or shouldn't act on youthful dreams. But with Jeff Bezos and Warren Bennis, I encourage you to examine from the future your present self and think about what's going to lead to your greatest satisfaction. Because we here at The Motley Fool, as I've mentioned before, are here to help make you smarter, happier, and richer. And this one is kind of about the happy. And speaking of happy, I'm going to happily close here with one of my favorite quotations for great quotation number five. I should mention, by the way, even though I've kind of hailed back to a few previous podcasts when I use quotes, Every one of these Great Quotes Volume X podcasts has a unique set of around five quotations, so I'm never duplicating. Every one of them, I hope, will stand on their own. So, yes, I've saved one of my favorite quotations till now to end with this week's podcast, and it's from Dr. Seuss, Theodore Geisel. How can you not? One of the most quotable people of my lifetime. How can you not love Dr. Seuss? And this one comes from McGilligot's Pool. It was pointed out to me by one of our Motley Fool members some years ago. And he said, you know, have you ever read McGilligot's Pool? And I said, no, I've not. I mean, I've read a lot of the others, Green Eggs and Ham, of course. Um, I'm not really a big fan of Oh, The Places You'll Go. By the way, I think a lot of people dearly, deeply love Oh, The Places You'll Go. But for me, it's just a little threadbare. It's just kind of, it meanders on and on. You'll go here and you'll go there. And it's not as exciting to me. I realize for some people, it's a meaningful graduation gift that they receive or give. So I definitely don't want to rain on anybody's parade that's a Seussian parade, right? So, But I'm going to join into the parade here and say, beyond the big popular books, I, I'm going to encourage you to take a look at McGilligot's Pool, which starts this way. And here's great quotation number five. Young man, laughed the farmer, you must be a fool. You'll never catch fish in McGilligot's Pool. And why is that one of my favorite quotations from Dr. Seuss? Well, for two reasons. The first is, of course, it's a fool quote. It's there in my Fool and Folly quotations file on Evernote. This is one of my favorite fool quotes because, indeed, the farmer laughing, I sort of take that to be anybody who thinks you can't 
succeed in life. And for us, especially here at Full HQ, we're surrounded by academia and a lot of people who think that you could never beat the stock market averages. You shouldn't bother fishing in that pool. You must be a fool because you're never going to catch winning stocks or beat the market in McGilligot's pool. So, of course, the farmer laughing even motivates me to think that the farmer was there with the little kid laughing at the kid. Guess what? No spoilers, but you can imagine that maybe the kid does catch fish in the doctor's story, McGilligot's pool. That's the way it starts. Young man laughed the farmer. You must be a fool. You'll never catch fish in McGilligot's pool. So, of course, reason number one I love this quote is that it's a great fool quote. It stands toe-to-toe with any Shakespearean fool quote, at least in my head. But reason number two is that it's a reminder for all of us, and this kind of keys to my point with quotation number four, that the most satisfying wins we're going to have in life often happen when other people thought we couldn't do it. And I know a lot of you recognize that in your own lives. If you think about your peak moments, often it was that you were being doubted. People told you you couldn't do it. And again, for us here at The Fool, we so strongly believe in the greatness of investing, the power of investing for you and your life and for our world at large. You're right. I'm going to brand myself right here, a conscious capitalist. Yes, I don't really like socialism, for example. There are aspects of socialism that I think are healthy and can be good. But anybody who tells me that business isn't great or picking great businesses won't succeed runs contrary to all of my life's experience and what I stand for, what our company stands for, and what we're here to help you every week to think better about and act better about. So, when people tell you that you're a fool because of what you're about to do with your money or your business, of course, if the farmer is very wise and a mentor of yours, you might want to listen hard and lean in and, and feel challenged by that. But often, if it's just a farmer standing near a pool, I mean, it's not even like a fisherman was saying that to the kid, it's just a farmer, uh, then I do encourage you to consider taking that risk and not be a post-middle-aged person with regrets. So, there's a little bit of Dr. Seuss to close. And in fact, one day, I think I'm going to try to write one more investment book. We've written a lot in the past, but I feel like I have one more book in me. I've been saving quotes and thoughts and observations about the stock market. And if I ever do get around to finally writing that book, pretty sure this will be an epigraph for that book. Might be the frontispiece, might be right up front, or might be there for a chapter. But I've subsequently found McGillicott's Pool subsequent to writing some of our past books. So this is new material for me, even though it's old material to many Seuss fans. All right, well, there you have it. Rule Breaker Investing, the podcast, the week of October 24th. Next week, we're going to have, yep, it's the final Wednesday of the month, so it's time for Mailbag. I did mention earlier, you could write us, rbi at fool.com, and I specifically asked earlier for you to direct any Get Started Investing questions to that email address. That's what we'll be doing in two weeks. But I also want to encourage you, if you have any thoughts about this podcast, about the League of Extraordinary Stock Pickers, or some of my conclusions about 200 consecutive monthly stock picks made by my brother and made by me and Motley Fool Stock Advisor, anything we talked about this month, always fair game for the Rule Breaker Investing Mailbag. So that's what's coming your way next week. In the meantime, have a great week. Fool on. As always, people on this program may have interest in the stocks they talk about, and The Motley Fool may have formal recommendations for or against. So don't buy or sell stocks based solely on what you hear. Learn more about Rule Breaker Investing at rbi.fool.com. 